0: who were buried 2,300 feet underground in Chile. And there was a rescue operation underway to get them out. You'll recall that mine collapse happened on August the 5th of 2010. It was 17 days before they even knew if the miners were alive. They had drilled a very small shaft, hoping to find the location where these men were, 2,300 feet underground, not knowing if they could find it, and if they did find it, would the men even be there? And as they broke free into an area, they thought perhaps that was the spot, and they brought that small drill back up out of the hole. There was a note attached to the end of the drill bit, and it said, we are well in the refuge the 33 and all of those women who were there waiting to find out if their husbands were alive breathed an incredible sigh of relief and then they began working on the plan to get them out to rescue those 33 miners the scientists who were initially working on the plan said that they believed there was a 1% chance that the rescue would would succeed. 1% chance that they could actually drill a shaft large enough down to the miners and then get them out after having been in who knows how long. The initial estimates were up to 120 days to drill the hole 2,300 feet. You see, the rock in Chile is that hard. It's some of the hardest rock in the world. The piece that had fallen off, it was estimated to weigh as much as two Empire State Buildings, the chunk that had blocked their exit from that mine. And so, for 69 days, they drilled not one shaft, but three shafts finally drilling a shaft large enough where they could send a capsule that was 12 inches in diameter down into the mine shaft. And they began to extract those miners one after another until all 33 of them stood above ground. It's an amazing story of a rescue. An amazing story of salvation, really, for those 33 men. This morning, we are going to Exodus chapter 16, and we're going to read about another amazing rescue as we talk about the Lord's salvation. Listen, that is the story of the Bible. It's a story of God's rescue of us, of humanity. It's a story that began the moment we fell in Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis 3.15, there's a promise there that God would rescue us. And so all along the way, we get these vignettes, really, these pieces of the story. We get, we get pictures all along the way of how it is that God is rescuing us. And in Exodus 16, we get one such picture. And so if you're there with me, we're going to read uh, the first number of verses here, eight or nine or so, as we look at this particular part of that overall story. Exodus 16, beginning in verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And in this way, I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. And on the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And it is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. And so Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. Because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? And Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning. Because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need to hear, perhaps having already heard, perhaps never having heard. We all need to hear this morning reminders of your grace and of your mercy. And so, as we come to this story of how you provided for your people in the desert, how you gave life to them their very lives being completely and totally dependent upon You and You met their every need. Father, as we come, as we hear it, open our ears, prepare our hearts, let our meditations be honoring to You and good for us. In Jesus' name, Amen. The Lord's salvation. You see it right there in verse 6. Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites in the evening, You will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. It was the Lord's salvation. The first thing that I want you to see about it is why we need it. And this may seem self-evident to you, but it isn't always so. The picture in the book of Exodus is a macro picture, really. It's a large picture of us individually, every single one of us. So as the Israelites are there, and they're in the desert, and they're grumbling about their circumstances, life was not at all what they wanted. It wasn't what they dreamed of. It wasn't what they had hoped for at this point. They became nostalgic. What was it that they were nostalgic about? They were nostalgic about food. They were nostalgic about what they had to eat all the way back when they were slaves. And so now, even though they're free from the reign of Pharaoh, their hearts, their longing is back on what they were eating in Egypt. When I was a kid, I used to eat, well, mom's not here this morning, but don't say a word. Next week, I loved those little cans of deviled ham. You remember those? And the little devil with a pitchfork on them? My mom would make that potted meat, those potted meat sandwiches for me, and put mustard on them, and I loved them. They were nostalgic about potted meat. The text says it, right? They sat around giant pots of meat. All right. They were nostalgic about pots of meat. Now listen, it's quite likely that they didn't eat meat very often. They were slaves in Egypt. So somewhere, however, in their journey, they came onto some pots of meat and they sat around them, but they weren't that frequent. But that's what they remembered. Oh, they said, do you remember sitting around those giant pots of meat, eating and having our fill? And that's what it was that they were nostalgic about. It's a picture of need. Because Moses and Aaron were not responsible for bringing them out, they turned their attention to God. And they told them, listen, we didn't bring you out. God brought you out here. And so they needed to be reminded that something big was happening, that this was God's salvation for them. And they need to be reminded as well that it was all for His glory. And here's the problem. Here, Right here is the problem. It's us. It's not His salvation. It's not what He's done. It's not where He has us in life. It's us. There's a woman named Beatrice Webb. She lived back in the 1800s. She's largely considered to be the architect of Britain's modern welfare state. And somewhere in her journey, she wrote this in her diary, about 1819. I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. Now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in man. How little you can count on changing some of these for instance, the appeal of wealth and power, by any change in the social machinery. No amount of knowledge or science will be of any avail unless we can curb the bad impulse. It's easy, isn't it, to stop, to look out at the world, and to say, there's a problem there's a problem, to watch the news, to look at the education system, to, to talk about leaders, and to point our fingers and to say, there is the problem right there. It's easy to do that. And we do it all the time. We point over the fence and we say, there are the problems out there. It's easy to do that. But it's not altogether right and the real question is, what part do you play? What part do, do we play in the problems in the world around us? You see, it wasn't just Israel. It was the people who made up Israel. There's an oft-recounted story that the Times of London had sent out a letter. They sent it out to famous writers, authors around Britain, and they were asking the question about the state of the world, and they asked, what is wrong with the world today? And it's reported that G.K. Chesterton responded simply with his own letter to them, in which he said, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. What part do you play What sin do you bring to the equation? You see, there they were out in the desert, and each of them individually were looking at the salvation that God had brought them, and they were critical of it. And so they joined their voices in unison and said, What have you done to us? Why have you brought us out here? David put it this way in Psalm 51, Surely I was sinful, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So what is true here of Israel in the macro is true for us in the micro. We have a problem. We have a problem. And that is that we're all in desperate need of the Lord's salvation because we're all sinners of the first order. And so when your first impulse is to point the finger out there and say look at all of the problems in the world around us when your first impulse is to point your finger at someone else and say that's the problem that's your first and best indication that something is wrong at home Paul says in 1 Timothy 1:15 he wrote there that he was the chief of sinners No caveats, no ifs, ands, or buts. He wrote that he was the chief of sinners. Why do we need the Lord's salvation? Because we are desperately afloat, adrift without it. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And here's the second part. So perhaps you're here this morning, you've never heard the gospel, it's never rung in your ears. It begins right there, acknowledging that we are sinners. And the second part is that we need the Lord's salvation every step along the journey of life. Why? Because just as Israel was in the desert having already experienced God's salvation, they grumbled and they complained about it. They looked at it and they looked at that salvation and they said we would rather have what we had Then what God would have for us. Three years after being rescued from the mine, the leader who was down in that mine, his name was Mario, he was interviewed following some proceedings. What had happened was they had gone and they took the men who owned that mine. And they were charged. And so they went to court. And three years later, the court, the ruling was that they, those men were not at fault. And after that ruling, Mario was interview, interviewed, and this is what he said. He said, today, I want to dig a deep hole and bury myself again. Only this time, I don't want anybody to find me. Hmm. Wow. Having experienced an amazing salvation, he went on to say that he had thought about going and setting himself on fire on the steps of the courthouse. Because he was so bitter about the experience that he'd had. Does it sound a little bit familiar? I know it's difficult. I mean, you hear a story, and it's painful and it's hard to hear, but he was rescued. After 69 days, 2,300 feet underground, he experienced the most amazing rescue. And then three years later, he looked at it and said, I wish that they would bury me again so that I could never be found. And there was Israel out in the wilderness. And what were they saying? We wish you would just take us back to Pharaoh. They grumbled and they complained. Listen, we may not do it that way. We may not go about it that way, but how many times have you been in a situation in your life and you say, why this? Why now? Why am I going through this experience, God? Not uncommon at all. The great hymn, Come Thou Fount, puts it this way. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It brings us to our second point. As we talk about the salvation of the Lord, the Lord's salvation, we ask the question, how do we see it? In the passage before us, they saw it and that God provided for them quail and He provided for them manna. Quail in the evening, manna in the morning. He fed them, He gave them a meal and He tied Himself to it. So he was providing for them because they had a great need in their lives. And so what God did was he provided for them salvation. He gave them salvation. He had saved them. He had rescued them. And now along the way, he rescued them each day. Each day, he required them to walk out and to pick up their salvation each day he required them to walk out and to pick up their sustenance and so in doing that he tied himself to their everyday meal and so what he was saying to them is i am your god i am taking care of you i am providing for you just think of the lord's prayer in which jesus taught them to pray that that god would meet their daily needs that he would give them their daily bread And that's what he was doing. And he was tying his salvation to their very sustenance each and every day. After that, after they entered into the promised land, he continued to tie himself to a meal. He gave them the Passover. They had the Passover meal, and in that meal, he tied himself once again to food. And He said, do this every year. Remember Me. Remember the salvation that I have provided for you. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus takes the Passover meal and He breathes a new life into it in the New Covenant. And He makes it the New Covenant meal. And in the New Covenant meal, we do it often. as often... As often as we do it, we're to think on Him. And we, as we eat the meal, we proclaim Him and His death. And we're to do it until He comes again for us. It's amazing that He gave us this. Because it's very practical. It's a practical reminder. You're taking food. You're putting it in your mouth. You're eating it. You're chewing it. And it's as if God's saying, I am that real to you. I am your Substance in life. And so this morning, as we come to this table, we're going to do a couple of things. First, we're going to remember, we're going to think upon the meal that day as Jesus met with his disciples. The second thing is we rehearse, we rehearse the events of that evening. We basically go through them. This is what Jesus did. He broke the bread. He gave it. He took the wine. He gave it to them. And they ate together a meal. And then we renew. We renew our covenant vows. We, do, we essentially are doing what they did. Is Moses would read the law and the people would say, Everything you have commanded, we will do. And we are saying, Everything you have asked of us as your children We will do. And we do it by taking the bread and taking the cup and saying, I do. I do. Here's the last point. How it changes us. The Lord's salvation. How does it change us? This has long been a debate. Long been a debate in Christian circles has something happened to the bread and to the wine to the juice as we as as we gather together and there's the institution and the words of institution does something happen to it and then we take it and so we're taking in grace and we're it's filling us up and uh, That was a view, and the Protestants said, no, that's not what's happening. What's happening is that the bread remains bread, and the juice and the wine remain juice, and wine, the fruit of the vine, and we take them, and then together with our faith, they become a means of grace to us. And we read that this morning, didn't we, in the Heidelberg Catechism. And so as we come together this morning at the supper at the Lord's table, we are partaking of Christ spiritually. And He's building us up and He's renewing us. And, it, and the meal becomes for us a means that is a vehicle of grace to us as it mingles with our faith. Somehow, some way, the people in the desert, as they were wandering and God was providing for them manna and quail and water from the rock, what does the Apostle Paul say? Well, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 10 and listen to the words. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, they were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And then he says this, they all ate the same spiritual food. Oh, really? Really? The same spiritual food that you and I are getting ready to eat this morning, they ate back then. He says, they ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. It's a reference, really, particularly if you want to read about it, it's a reference to chapter 19. But what an amazing picture, and what the Apostle Paul is saying is, when you come and you have this meal, you have this meal, and it's the same meal that they were eating as they picked that manna up off the ground, and as the quail were were there, and as they drank water from the rock, they drank spiritually of Christ, through a veil, darkly, sure, but no less of Christ. And so you and I, as we come together this morning to celebrate the meal, to celebrate this new covenant meal that Jesus set for us. We come and we are consuming this spiritual food, this nourishment that is for our souls. And it is no less than Jesus Himself. John 6, verse 35, Jesus Himself announces, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. That's the rescue story, right? We know it. We've experienced it. This is the meal for the journey that you and I have been given. John Calvin would often talk about these sorts of things, the sacraments. He said that God has given them to us because we are like children, like infants, and we need to see. Often we want to see, we want pictures, we want vis- visible representations of Jesus and what He did. And He gave those to us. He gave them to us in baptism and He gave them to us in the Lord's Supper. Where we get to come and we get to see with our eyes, we get to taste and smell, and we, we get to consume. And all of it is because He loved us. And He knows Our faith is weak. So this morning, we're going to come to the Lord's Supper. This is not my supper. It's not the elder's supper. It's not the Presbyterian church's supper. It's the Lord's Supper. And we're going to come and we're going to eat this meal together. And there's an invitation. And the invitation is to all of those who have professed Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior, who are trusting in Him alone for salvation. And are members of an evangelical church in good standing. Whatever that membership looks like and whatever church you're a part of, if you're in good standing, the invitation is for you. And as we come and we celebrate this meal, we come and the invitation is for those who are not, who have confessed Christ and who are confessing Christ. And so what I often say is, are you in the fight? Are you in the battle? Are you in the struggle? It's not for people who are perfect. This meal is not for those who have got it, have their lives all cleaned up and are all together and are all, have it all just right. This meal's not for you. If you're here this morning and you think you're going to take this meal under your own strength and power because you have muscled it together and you've got it right. My encouragement would be be to not take the meal. But if you're here this morning and you're in the fight, you're looking to Christ, you're trusting Him, you know your sin, it's always before you. And this meal is for you because it's for your journey of faith. And so we come this morning and we partake of this meal and we do so trusting that it is a meal that is from Christ and for us. And that it builds us up and it strengthens us. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you this morning for the opportunity to come. First, to your word to be nourished by it. To be reminded of so great a salvation as this. That the people so long ago there in the desert in great need saw your provision tasted your provision. We're reminded that you were the God of their salvation. And Father, this morning we need that very reminder. The road is hard. It is difficult. We are prone to wander. We are prone to leave you. We are prone to grumble and complain. But this morning, Father, would you call us home? Would you show us the meal? Would you remind us of all that You've done for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.